So on March the 26th of this year, he stepped off the airplane with his family after their Florida vacation. He was known as a high society, blue-blooded Wall Street scion. The moment he stepped off that plane, he was arrested by the FBI, handcuffed in front of his shocked wife and children. He's been accused of soliciting fraud to the tune of $90 million, including the loss of his mother's fortune. The article claims he was feeding an addiction to market speculation. He had an unhealthy fixation on high-risk investments. It is not well with his soul. What went wrong? A former Speaker of the House will be sentenced in a criminal case connected to hush money payments for sexual encounters with teenage boys. The article says, as he rose in the ranks of his political career, the boys he abused struggled into adulthood, and they still do. It is not well with his soul. What went wrong? A Cleveland man kidnaps three women and holds them captive for a decade in a neighborhood, in a house. One of them miraculously escapes. And that night, the guy is busted and arrested, pleads guilty, goes to prison, and then he hangs himself. What went wrong? What went wrong? Every week, the front page stories of both local and national papers inform us of people whose souls are not well. People who've committed heinous acts against innocent adults and helpless children. And there'll be more next week. There'll be more next week. And the question still remains, what, what's wrong? What is wrong? And these tragedies occur at such a pace that I'm just numb by it. You know, I read it on the front page, and then, you know, I think, wow, that's sad. Okay, what's the weather like? I flip it on the back, and that's just me, you know? Until it gets personal. Until it gets personal. Like, like last Wednesday. Here in our office, I learned that someone, some cyber hack in internet space was using my name under the banner of my phone to try to get our operations manager, Julie Folsom, to wire $21,000 in church funds to an account, just send it to this link. It is not well. Was well, not well with my soul. I'm thinking, who would do that? And then I'm going, do they think we're stupid? They think we're stupid, right? Yeah, they must. I mean, we have strict protocols, right? Purchase orders and 
forms and signatures. I don't sign any checks. The signature part of the check. If you ever get a check from the church that has my name on the signature, call the police. All right? I mean, we have protocols with that. And, and you know, I'm just thinking, how, who, who would, how dare they? And what knucklehead was trying to scam us out of 21 grand? I had to change passwords, like, on the spot, uh, uh, several passwords. I was late for my next appointment. I felt angry and violated. And I'm thinking, what's gone wrong? And now I'm not interested in the weather forecast. Because it was personal, right? What's gone wrong? How do you think about this question, what's gone wrong? How do you think about it? We're in a series called Think. How does a Christian mind think? And last week we talked about the one of the hallmarks of Christian thinking is the eternal perspective that this world is not all there is. That there is another world beyond this world and that God is, is working to remake this world into the new heavens and the new earth. And our destiny is a, a resurrected body serving a resurrected Christ on a resurrected heaven and earth. I mean, that's just a hallmark of Christian thinking. Well, the Christian mind then, on that basis wants to ask the question, well, okay, this is obviously not the new heavens and the new earth. What's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? And some, and nobody argues that there's a problem. Nobody. It's the answer to the problem. And some respond to that question, assuming that we're just Machines with body parts and blood cells needing only the proper mechanistic alignment to make us right. Others assume that we're just animals and we just need to be trained. We just need behavior modification from the outside in. That'll make us right. Others assume that we just need more education and we just need more shelter and we just need more care brought about by massive governmental redistribution of wealth and only then will we be able to make the right choices. And still others conclude, well, there's really no good answer to that question. We're just powerless pawns in a game that's being played for no apparent reason, so good luck. Christian thinking has a more comprehensive point of view. For to think critically, to think Christianly, to think with the mind of Christ would lead us to conclude what God says, that we are made in His image, yet we are broken and fallen due to the insurrection of sin. The sin that originated from Adam's rebellion in Eden and the sin we freely choose ourselves. Christian thinking acknowledges the strength, the scope, and the influence of evil on and in our lives. Christian thinking concurs with Romans chapter 3, verse 21. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christian thinking concurs with 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christian thinking concurs with Jesus' assessment of our situation. In Luke chapter 11... Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. 
And in the middle of that lesson on prayer, he gives an offhanded comment. It's just, it's just kind of offhanded. But he tells in that offhanded comment what he sees in our human situation. He says this, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and then his point later on is, is how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So, but, but, but stop right there at the first part of that verse. Jesus asserts that even the best of us have been so corrupted by sin so as to call us evil. He's talking to his disciples in that verse. He wasn't talking to insurrectionists and terrorists of the Roman Empire. He's talking to his followers. If you then, though you are evil. So no one, apart from those who hold to Jesus' view of sin, can look at their friends, their family, their, 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 their spouses, their children with such delight and say, you know, I love them, but they have lots of evil in them. And so do I. Harry Blumers, in his book titled The Christian Mind, says this. The Christian mind has an acute and sensitive awareness of the power and spread of evil upon the human scene. So we're not going to be naive about what's wrong with this world. We're going to actually say, no, this, is, this world's broken, and it's because of sin and evil. So I just want us to talk about the biblical view of sin and evil, what it is and where it came from this morning as we learn to think Christianly. But before I do that, I want to address some objections that maybe you or someone in the next service will have uh, just about this whole discussion. Because there may be someone here right now who's thinking, okay, all right, time out. I'm just going to check out. I'm going to just get on my iPhone and Make sure nobody's fished into my accounts, and I'm just going to surf the weather till this guy is done blabbering on about sin, and then I'm not coming back to this church. Because this is why I don't go to church. Guys like this Okie who stand up and blather on about sin and evil, and oh, how negative. I didn't come here for negativity. I came here for positivity. So how can you Christians be so negative, all right? I get it. I really do. Let me just respond to that for just a minute, okay? Let's say that you were a restaurant owner. And um, I was a health inspector. And I came to your restaurant, and I visited your restaurant, and that restaurant was labeled as failing, right? We have the different color signs in our community, huh? Green, right? Thumbs up, yellow, eh, red, not going to have any hamburger today, right? Green, yellow, we see those signs as we enter the doors of our restaurants in town and everything. So let's say that I came to your restaurant and, and I saw you know, no hygiene, poor food service, terrible, and I pull out the red sheet and, and I'm saying, I'm, this is failing. And you say, how can you be so negative? How can you be, so, what makes you such a cynic? Don't you have any faith in fine dining? I don't have time for your negativity. Now, you know, what would be the proper response to that? Uh, no, actually, I do believe in fine dining, which is why I think so poorly of your restaurant. 
See? I, I mean, I believe in what restaurants are capable of producing and what customers are capable of enjoying, and that's why I'm so distressed. And that's why you get the red sheet for the time being. Right? Likewise, the doctrine of sin and evil assert that something's gone wrong with ourselves that keep us from functioning the way things ought to be. So, you know, whatever the human brain was made for, it wasn't made so that we would make suicide vests to be detonated in crowded shopping malls. That's not what human brains were made for. Biblical Christianity holds to a high view of humans and human life, which is why it teaches that sin dehumanizes human life. So I would argue that the doctrine of sin and evil is actually an optimistic teaching because it calls for God's best in us, you see? So, uh, no, we're, we're not trying to be negative. We're trying to just call us to what God has created us for. So that's the first objection, okay? The second objection is one that um, I actually often receive when people are asking me about uh, biblical Christianity and evil in our world. And it, it, it's this question right here. Maybe you've discussed this question. Why did God create evil in the first place? Have you ever heard that? Why did God create evil in the first place? Now, that's an honest question. And at the same time, the question assumes that evil is a created thing. And you can understand the logic. God created all things. Evil is a thing. Therefore, God created evil. Okay? Well, I agree with the first premise, God created all things. It's the second premise that I question, and thus the conclusion. And let me put it this way. Have you ever eaten a donut hole? Huh? All right. No, 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 I'm not talking about those gut bombs that you wolfed down Saturday morning at Carmela's. Right. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about a donut hole. I'm talking about the, what's a donut hole? A donut hole is a space where the donut isn't. Okay? So donut holes are not created things. Um, right here on stage, we got shadows going on here. Is, the, is, 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 is my shadow a thing? Or is it the absence of light? What about cold? Is cold a created thing, or is it merely the absence of heat? You see where I'm going, don't you? Evil is a hole in goodness. Evil is a hole in the goodness of God, and evil and sin stem from the absence of God's goodness. So evil is not a created thing. Therefore, God did not create evil. Evil is the inevitable state of life apart from God. Now, now that I've talked about those two objections, let's talk about evil. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about its origin. And then let's see what God has done about it. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the New Testament book of Romans. 
Romans chapter 5, and I want to read verses 12 through 21, and you'll find Romans 5 on page 942 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would love it if you could just take uh, the copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from Windsor Road. And this section is appropriately titled, there at the top, Death and Adam, Life in Christ. So just think that, Death and Adam, Life in Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, he's talking about Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Paul's talking about Adam and Christ. And death that came through Adam and life that comes through Christ. So in Romans 5 verse 12 we learn that sin originated from Adam. Whose rebellion in Eden has corrupted every part of our world. Sin originated from Adam. That's how we get that phrase, original sin. Verse 12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man. And when Paul says that, he's thinking of Genesis chapter 3. And Adam's rebellion in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was through Adam, the one man, that sin came into the world. But as Paul's talking here, you really get it that he's just not talking about sin as a rule violation or just a foul and God blows the whistle. In these verses and elsewhere in Scripture, it's very clear that Adam's sin unleashed a malignant power into the world 
sin, evil. That's the point of verses 13 and 14. Adam's rebellious act affected all, even those who lived before the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. Even those who may not have necessarily sinned in the way that Adam did. His sin unleashed this malignant power. I mean, it was that serious. And here's why. Please don't miss this. When God created Adam and Eve, Hebrew words which mean the man and the woman, He created them to rule in His garden temple of Eden. You see, God is a temple dweller. And all throughout the Bible, we see Him dwelling in temples. And so Eden was this garden temple. And don't think of garden like we're gardening our vegetables. Think of like national forest type of garden. This massive garden temple. God dwelled. And then later on, you know, you see God dwelling in this mountain temple called Sinai. And then later on, this tabernacle temple in the wilderness and Solomon's temple and so on and so forth. God is a temple dweller. And he originally created Adam and Eve as his royal priests. They would mediate his loving presence. They would live in perfect community and in unspoiled unity and flawless love. And they would gather food effortlessly. And they would reproduce and multiply with joy and pleasure. And the earth would be filled under their rule as loving, benevolent representatives of the sovereign God. They would live in harmony as co-regents. In fact, the repeated word in Genesis 1 and 2 is the word good. Good. And God saw that it was good. A good God created a good world ruled by His good representatives, the man and woman. Good saturates all we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we turn to Genesis chapter 3. And it's almost like there's this left turn. An intruder appears. Satan and sin are intruders upon God's good creation. And Adam is tested. He faces a choice. And instead of trusting the good God's good word, instead of exercising his God-given authority, To apprehend that sinister snake, that intruder. And march that snake to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And such trees in the ancient world were viewed as places of judgment. Adam had the authority to apprehend that intruding serpent. March him to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where he would judge that serpent for questioning God's good word, and have that serpent expelled from Eden. He had that authority. God had given it to him. But you know the story. Instead, instead of expelling the serpent and sin from this garden temple, he sides with him. What's gone wrong? That's what's gone wrong. Adam rebelled against the giver of life. And when you cut your your life off from the giver of life, 
there's nothing but death. And Adam's sin has had malignant and cataclysmic consequences. For it has metastasized throughout the entire universe. There's no area of life unaffected by sin. No area. And this metastasis is what we preachers call total depravity. Total depravity. Total, total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means that there's no aspect of your life and my life, no aspect of our thinking, no aspect of our desires, no aspect of our behaviors and actions, no aspect remains untouched by the corrosive and malignant effects of sin. It's not negative, it's just what it is. And sin can be found everywhere, in cities and in the countryside and in the coastal urban centers and in the heartland country. And it can be found in technology and government and education and medicine and business and entertainment and, yes, the church. It's everywhere. What a mess. And here's the deal. We can't fix it. We, we can't. See? See, if you don't believe this point of view about what's gone wrong, you've you got to give me something because nothing else seems to fit. Nothing else seems to, to, to focus on the lens. This is, that, is that we need more education? Well, yeah, of course it helps. Yes, I've got four degrees. Education helps. I'm a learner. I love to learn. But that's not all. Money helps? Yes, of course it helps. Yes. But that's not the complete fix. We can't fix it. I want to share with you a quote from a very insightful theologian. His name is Mr. Incredible. You've seen the movie, Mr. Incred the Incredibles? It's about Mr. Incredible, this superhero dedicated to saving the world from evil. And at the beginning of the movie, he's just really frustrated. He vents his frustration to a reporter. All right? No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for 10 minutes? No. <laughs> no, we can't. No, we can't. It's broken. We can't fix it ourselves. Okay. Now, here's the deal. Once we understand that, and once our thinking is clear on that, then we really shouldn't be so shocked when we see sin. Should we? Grieved, yes. Hurt, of course. Disheartened, absolutely. But like shocked, like, oh, what? No, we should. And why? Because we know all have sinned and fall short for the glory of God. Okay? Some of you have been burned by preachers. I'm, I'm sorry for that. I really am. Um, don't be shocked by that, though. Preachers are sinners. And you know, once we see the scope of sin, once we see how pervasive sin is, 
we really won't be so quick to divide the world into good guys and bad guys, right? You know, it's easy to do that. Well, there's good guys and there's bad guys. There's Republicans and there's Democrats. There's union, there's management. There's Okies, there's Texans. There's Cubs fans, there's Cards fans. Right? There's, there's pastors, school teachers, and firefighters. And, and then there's gangsters and terrorists and general contractors, you know. So. <laughs> it's going to be an awkward elders meeting for the pastor on Tuesday. Just kidding. But, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And once we understand how pervasive sin is, we will know that the blade that slices between good and evil does so at the most unexpected angles. Like right through my heart. Here, Romans 7, 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Can anybody in this room identify with that? I mean, do you believe that within you that there is a destructive tendency that tries to trip you and confuse you and will ultimately destroy you? One author calls it a readiness to sin factor. A ready, readiness to sin. So the idea that at any time, in a moment's notice, we can be incited to sin at the slightest aggravation, right? You get cut off in traffic. Oh, you get cut off in a conversation. You get cut off by a smart aleck colleague. Something happens at home and, you know, your spouse says the, like the wrong syllable or something like that. And you either assault with words or you withdraw into emotional coldness. You withhold love. You withhold warmth. You call it a temptation. Call it a trigger. Call it whatever you want to call it. But our readiness to sin stems from our heart's twisted desire to want to be God. That's the serpent's lure in Genesis 3. You will be like God. And sin is when we try to be our own God. And sin is when we try to do life cut off from God. You know, we, we humans can do many things really well. We're just not good at being God. Yet that's the problem. I'm the problem. I am why this world is so messed up. I have delusions of deity. I want to be God. That's what this says. So when we talk about original sin, total depravity, and the presence of evil, we don't talk about it with a judgmental spirit that says, oh, what a horrifying world we Christians have to cope with. <laughs> no. Rather, we say, oh my, what have I done? What have I done? What have we done, all of us? Help. Help. And when we say help, and when we finally get sick and tired of being sick and tired, the gospel shows up. Because the gospel news is this. 
It was into such a world as this that Christ came. For God so loved the world, he's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about the oceans and the mountains. He's talking about a world that was so corrupted and depraved and evil and dark and hopeless and helpless, a world of embezzlers and adulterers and assassins and molesters. There's no evil now that didn't exist 2,000 years ago when Christ came, but he came. He came to a simple home. He spoke in a simple local dialect. His followers were simple Galileans. He came at the humblest level because as God, that's where he wanted to be. He wanted to serve and work and love, live among the underprivileged. He came, and he was not a success in the eyes of Rome. He didn't have a brilliant career or climb the social ladder. He didn't acquire more prestige and status and possessions. He lived a flawless, perfect life, though. And while he looked so much like man, he was man. He acted like God. He was God, the God-man. And he was brutally punished for our evil. This innocent one was judged guilty and put to death, a slave's death on a Roman cross. And God vindicated him by raising him from the dead so that we might reign in life. So Christianity is about what God has done in Christ to more than compensate for the effects of Adam's sin. More than, much more. Those are the words that ring in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Like in verse 15, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's why Paul says in verse 17, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We worship the God of more, much more, all the more. What Christ has done is super abundantly above and beyond what all we could ask or imagine. And it's all by His grace, all by His gift. Notice how many times the words grace and free gift show up in these verses. And notice this. This is so beautiful. In verse 17, Paul says, While death reigned because of Adam, well, the reader's just expecting Paul to say, you know, to balance it by saying, uh, you know, life reigns in Christ. But that's not what he says. He says in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness, they will reign in life. So it's not death reigns in Adam, therefore life reigns in Christ. No, it's we reign, you and me. The sovereign rule that God had appointed to us over this earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, we reign, we who have received Christ. We, and it's a free gift. And you may think, well, well, wait a minute. I feel like I need to do something to make myself acceptable. No, no, no. The gospel does not tell me what to do to be saved. 
The gospel tells me that I don't need to do anything to be saved. The gospel does not tell me what to do to get God to accept me. It tells me that God accepts me as a sinner. The gospel doesn't demand a response of faith. It creates a response of faith. The gospel doesn't demand anything because the gospel is not a demand. It's an offer. The gospel does not command me to be active for God. It invites me to be passive so that God can work through me. The gospel doesn't tell me that God will love me if I repent and have faith. It tells me that I can repent and have faith because he first loved me. The gospel does not just lead me into self-examination or self-assertion. It leads me out of myself into self-forgetfulness and self-surrender. And the gospel doesn't cause me to look more at myself. The gospel directs my attention to my King and Savior so that I'm free to see my neighbor. That's beautiful. That's why we gather. I guess what I'm trying to say is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You don't remember anything else. Remember this. In Adam, all die. In Christ, shall all be made alive. Are you in Christ? See, we gather here as a community of rescued sinners. We gather here as a church family, not because we're better than the world. It's not because everybody else is a sinner and we're not. Not because we've arrived and they haven't. We gather here to exalt the one who has rescued us from a darkness we could, from a Blair's Witch Project darkness that we could never, those people are still trying to get out of that forest. They're lost. They're lost. But we've been rescued. We gather here to say, I'm Randy. And I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. I'm recovering from anger and legalism and bitterness and self-centeredness. Friday, at Celebrate Recovery, I heard of Michelle's faith story. And, and on my way home, I just, I mean, it was, a, it was a, in Adam I'll die, in Christ shall all be made alive faith story. Wow. And on my way home, I just, I just worship Jesus for what he has done and is doing to change lives. So brothers and sisters, we're not going to be in denial about our issues. We know our sin. And we know that Jesus is the God of much more. In everything we do, every time we serve, every act of love we perform, every gift in the offering that we give is not to rescue ourselves, but it's just to say thank you to the God of much more. We're a rescued people. We can't repay what he did to change our future. So we just say thank you with our lives. In Adam, I'll die. In Christ, shall all be made alive.
That's a good word, isn't it? 